Hello, everybody, uh, and welcome to another episode. My next guest is, and this time I have the honor to host Annette Wenger. She is a professor of medicine and cardiology at Emory University. She is also consultant to the Heart and Vascular Institute. And if I will mention all her titles and awards, we're probably not going to have time to discussion. So I'll uh, make a short here and welcome you, Nanette. Delighted to be with you, Ron. And uh, one thing that uh, struck my mind is um, the, I, I, know, I know you since I came to Emory, but you've been active in cardiology way, way before that. And when I was thinking about someone in a different field, I would say, uh, you kind of remind me the Ruth Ginsburg of cardiology. And why do I say that? Because when you started uh, in cardiology and even in medicine, there were not many women that were selected to be in med school and definitely not in cardiology. Um, I went through your, through your bio and I saw you were at Harvard and then you did cardiology at Mount Sinai as a postgraduate. But tell me about those days, how easy or difficult was to be a woman uh, in medicine and in cardiology? Well, you know, Ron, mine was the sixth class of women at the Harvard Medical School. Harvard was relatively late in admitting women, but I had a wonderful experience in medical school. My classmates were very supportive. Many of us still remain friends decades later, and I had a wonderful experience. There were relatively few faculty members who did not welcome the women. And uh, if we did well, they treated us well. At the Mount Sinai Hospital, I was fortunate to be exposed to a number of phenomenal cardiologists, Charles Freeberg, Simon Dack, Arthur Grishman, and essentially their approach was gender neutral. As a matter of fact, when Charles Friedberg became chief of cardiology, he appointed me as his first chief fellow. So uh, I just never had problems. When I came as junior faculty to the Emory University School of Medicine, as I have said on many other settings, there was probably even a larger challenge than the challenge of being a woman. And that is for the first time I was exposed to a segregated society. And Ron, you know, we all have our core values, things that are instilled by our family, by our faith, and those guide the decisions that we make. When I came to Emory, I was chief of the cardiac clinics, and the habitual system at the time was that when patients were called to be seen in the clinic, the white patients were called Mr. and Mrs. and the black patients were called by their first names. Well, I decided that that was inappropriate, would not happen in my clinic. And as you might ima imagine, I ended up in the administrator's offices more than once the administrators and I became good friends, and we agreed to disagree. But that happened in my clinic. Our Black patients were called Mr. 
and misses. And I think having tackled that problem, uh, I developed a reputation for leadership, for fairness, and the issue of being a woman became almost secondary. Willis Hurst, who was my chief and subsequently my colleague for decades and a very valued colleague and friend, was very gender neutral. And uh, I did not have issues with being a woman. Uh, my approach to talking to young women today is to say the way that you develop your reputation is really by what you do so that you have to define where you see a need and not just identify the problem, but identify the solution. And in identifying solutions, you automatically become a leader. Let me give you an example, Ron. When I first came to Grady Memorial Hospital, which is the public hospital in the city of Atlanta, and at that time was the major teaching hospital of the Emory University School of Medicine, the misabuse of poor patients was perhaps almost as common as the abuse of black patients. And the assumption was that if you were impoverished, you really did not have any intellectual capacity. What happened is that when patients went to the pharmacy, they got their medications by number. So you would get a number seven, a number five, a number 12, no idea what they were. And of course, I thought that was totally inappropriate. I challenged the pharmacy committee. It took about two years to get it changed. But in the interim, I developed inadvertently what was probably one of the first patient education programs uh, in the country. Because what we did is on the old fashioned mimeograph machines, we mimeographed, for example, number five is digoxin. This is your heart medicine. Number so-and-so is Coumadin. This is your blood thinner. And from that, we went on to do other patient education materials for all of our patient problems. And we found Again, that was our solution to something until the system changed. So in a sense, by providing the solution, uh, you automatically become a leader because you are looked to in terms of patient education in this instance. I wonder what brought you to the South? I mean, you were... Um graduated from Harvard, Mount Sinai, that's very far from memory. What was the push to go there? Because at that time, obviously there was some, a lot of racial issues and there was a big challenge, but was there any reason uh, that you moved all the way to the South from the Northeast? Yes, my fiance and then my husband. Oh, that's uh, a <laughs> when, when Dr. Hurst came in as chief of uh, medicine, he was recruiting people from the premier institutions around the country. And only junior people would come to a segregated South. My husband came at, as chief of gastroenterology at the VA and assistant chief of medicine there. And I agreed to try Atlanta for one year. 
And as you can see, it has been a very long and very exciting journey. Yeah, uh, but I learned today something new. I mean, I knew that you were very active in terms of investigating uh, women in cardiology in terms of the disease, uh, supporting uh, overall women in cardiology. I didn't know how much active you were, and you gave me a few good examples in um, tackling this uh, disparity, the racial disparity that on those days it was pretty pronounced. Uh, we made a lot of progress since then, but do you still think that, that there is room for improvement in the racial disparity? Of course there is. We have just started on the journey. And I think what has given that journey a huge impetus has been the COVID pandemic, because we suddenly realized how important are the social determinants of health. And that was not in the common lexicon. It was important for those of us who focused on it. But we began to realize that we have to examine this much more widely. And racial disparity is one of them. Gender disparity is another one. But socioeconomic status, educational status, public policy. So we now are expanding our concept of diversity and inclusion uh, to everything, to, to clinical care, to clinical medicine, to research, uh, and if we are successful, to public policy. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about your experience at Grady, you mentioned Grady before as a public hospital, but there was, a, and there still is, a medical school, the, I think called the Morehouse, uh, which was primarily was for Black. And when I was a fellow there, it always struck my mind. I, I was not, I came from Israel. I couldn't believe that there is a separate school. And it always bothers me. And, and I understand it's still going on today. So what was your experience as you were, I think, the chair of cardiology at Grady, and you spent quite quite some time there. Yeah, well, Morehouse has an excellent medical school, but when the Morehouse School of Medicine was started, they started with two years of basic science and Emory agreed that they would provide the two years of clinical experience because we had a large clinical faculty based at Grady. So for a number of years, Emory provided the clinical third and fourth year education. And we were very closely allied with the development of the Morehouse School of Medicine. And then as they developed an increased clinical faculty, they then had their separate four-year medical school. We work in parallel at Grady. Uh, a certain proportion of patients are seen by Morehouse, a certain by Emory. Uh, Morehouse does not have the full spectrum of clinical services, uh, but they have many clinical services. And we, we work side by side so that uh, I think each school reinforces the other. Morehouse has a major primary care emphasis and uh, I think is a very important contributor to Grady Memorial Hospital and to the Atlanta scene. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'd like to move to your work in women, and maybe I'll start with uh, writing the guidelines pre for prevention of cardiovascular disease in women. So how different are those guidelines uh, between 
women and men when it comes to preventing uh, cardiovascular disease? Well, you know, we now have well over a decade. The, 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 the first major update to the guidelines was 2011. There had been several ones before that. But in 2011, a number of things happened in that for the first time, uh, the pregnancy complications were considered to be important. And that brought the whole issue of pregnancy complications and subsequent cardiovascular disease on the scene. And as you know, in the current AHAACC prevention, they are considered ameliorating or extenuating circumstances and uh, are, are brought into consideration. Uh, for the first time there, anticoagulation and atrial fibrillation was addressed. And the emphasis was that even though men and women share multiple risk factors, they have a differential impact in women. And I think we've come to learn that very carefully. We've also learned that women with systemic autoimmune disease, and that is a disease that predominates in women, are much more prone to cardiovascular complications. And as a matter of fact, at the Emory Women's Heart Center, we have one of our cardiologists who meets patients in the rheumatology clinic uh, and addresses their cardiovascular risk factors. Remember that a woman with lupus is more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than she is from her lupus. So we have changed the spectrum and we're looking at many more issues for prevention in women. And of course, that has been a major emphasis of our Emory Women's Heart Center. Yeah, that is correct. And there is almost not a month before, maybe even a week, maybe a month, there is a paper coming about the disparities in outcome between men and women. Uh, the most recent one came to this week in JAMA Cardiology for LAA closure uh, for a large uh, LAA registry that showed that women tend to have more events, more bleeding, more pericardial tamponade compared to men. So, and, and the examples are a lot. I mean, you probably can list all of them, uh, but the question is, um, do we need to specialize in women medicine or in cardi cardiovascular or, or there is no point to do it specifically? You just have to add that to the totality of the uh, knowledge about cardiovascular and just pay attention when you having a patient that she's a female. Well, again, I think we have to address sex as a biologic variable. And as a biologic variable, it becomes important in the epidemiology, in the prevention, in the diagnosis, in the intervention. And uh, we have to know the differences and know how to address the differences when they are present. And I think we see this currently now mandated in our research agenda. You know, previously it was always recommended that you include women in research studies and that you disaggregate the results by sex, but they were recommendations and guidelines. But in the 2015 Research for All Act, for the first time, Ron, there was legislation that mandated that the NIH do two things. First, that in the basic sciences, that our basic science colleagues 
know the provenance of their cells and tissues and animals, female or male. And very often that was never in the papers. And I'm not sure some of the scientists really knew that. So were they looking at female diseases in cells and tissues from male animals? So that's now a mandate. And also the second mandate was the inclusion of women and underserved minorities in clinical trials. And now if there is not, as you present uh, your research grant, some issue, of the equal representation of women, if it's appropriate, uh, that grant is automatically triaged out. So we had to train the project officers, we had to train the study sections, and I think we're beginning to see the implications of that. And now the current crop of junior research scientists coming along suddenly are looking at this rather routinely because that's what they've grown up with. Now we're going to have to extend that to the underrepresented minorities and we're gonna to have to extend that otherwise. But this is just part of the diversity and inclusiveness of our universe. And that was a very good start uh, to make sure that they enrolled into the studies equally. And I think, as you said, it's coming now to minorities, uh, there should be a good representation. Otherwise, we don't know if the therapies or the strategies or the devices are equally good, safe, and effective for them. So I think uh, this notion that uh, you were one of the champions, I think, starting to show it in every study, as you mentioned, you cannot submit a grant without demonstrating how you're going to equalize. Uh, you, you also uh, founded a an interesting group in Atlanta, uh, which is called the Atlanta Women's Network. That, that's not necessarily related to cardiology. Is that because you have three daughters or because, what was the reason for that uh, Atlanta Women's Network? Well, this was many, many years ago. And remember that in the South, there were relatively few women who worked by choice early on. Most of the women worked because they had to work. But as, I was beginning to mature, I saw that they were an emerging group of women in business and in industry and in law, et cetera. And a group of us got together and said, we need to network, we need to support each other. And that has become a thriving group. And it is a network that nurtures and supports women and I think produces women leaders. Uh, we have to work with one another. This is a group that works across the community. And uh, I think there are, there are a number of, of, of women's groups. There's the International Women's Forum that I'm privileged to be a member of. And again, this is a group that connects the leaders, the women leaders in the community uh, across areas of interest and each supports the other so that this becomes a learning in the community and a learning uh, by women leaders to produce women leaders. Yeah, um, and, and you were the founder of this group, but I, I agree. I mean, a lot has been done since 1979 and we're seeing them more in politics, in CEOs and business, but still there is a lot of room for um, improvement. 
which brings me maybe back to medicine. When you look at the profile of med students today, uh, you see in many schools already more women than men uh, among the students, so more, more female than male gender. Uh, when you look at medicine, uh, it's still, I think, favoring uh, the men, but not by a lot. But when you go to cardiology, uh, there is a huge step down uh, in terms of women in cardiology and interventional cardiology. Recently, there is a little bit push to uh, more interest, which I can understand maybe some of the women who are fear from radiation, et cetera. But, but in cardiology, I mean, why we are not seeing uh, so much interest similar to other professions? Well, you know that for women in many areas, but particularly so in cardiology, the pipeline is very leaky. From 50% of medical students, uh, we're down to uh, um, almost this, an increased number of medical residents in the 30 to 40% medical residents. And then when we go down to cardiology fellows, it's about 19%. So that, that's the first. And then within cardiology, in terms of some of the cardiology subspecialties, fewer women in interventional, and yet we see women in, in abundance in the advanced heart failure, which is an invasive specialty in part and a challenging specialty. We're seeing more women going into EP, but I expect we have to make this a welcoming environment. Some of the challenge I expect is that during medical school and maybe even during residency, we're exposing women to the hospital component, which is a crisis intervention rather than the ongoing care of a patient with a disease. And I think if we expose more people to ambulatory cardiology, we're going to get more women to enter the field and then to go into the subspecialties as they realize it. Now, as you know, uh, the interventionalists meet their clinic. They see their patients before and after. The, uh, all of the, the EP, the same thing, see their patients before and after. And that component of continuity of care is often not evident during medical school or the internal medicine residency. And we have to work very hard to show the women who are in medical school and internal medicine how expansive is the scope of the practice of cardiology. I agree. And I think there's a lot of opportunities in imaging if you want to, because uh, the imaging can be done a lot remotely as well. And there is a so much progress in imaging in cardiology that can be filled. So I do hope that we will see those ranks filled also by females and maybe more on a personal level. If you're a female patient, uh, what is your experience? You rather see a male cardiologist taking care of you or a female cardiologist taking care of you? I think you really want to have a cardiologist who cares about you as an individual. And this is the whole concept that we've been emphasizing in the past decade of patient-centered care. And if you spend time to find out what that individual patient, man or woman, expects 
as an outcome of their cardiac care. What are their values? What do they want to happen? Then whether you're a man or a woman, you are going to be a successful clinician with that patient. Now, perhaps some of the studies that have shown that women do better in outcomes in emergency rooms and in some of the intensive care settings is simply the fact that I expect women listen better and longer. And when you work with a patient, you learn so much more by listening than by querying. And I expect that is one of the reasons why the reported studies of better outcomes with women clinicians is because we listen and we learn from our patients by listening. Thank you. And my final question would be, what would you say to the youngsters that are just finishing medical school, um, women or men, uh, just graduating, uh, you have the perspective of many, many decades of medicine. Uh, what would you tell them to look after? Well, I, I would hope to get these individuals before they get to medical school, to get them during their secondary schooling and during their college, and to tell them what an exciting field medicine is and how we are privileged to serve patients. And whether we do it in the research lab, in the basic science lab, in the uh, clinical research, or whether we do it at the bedside, it is indeed a sacred trust. And within that setting, cardiology literally reinvents itself every several years. The medications that I learned about during training are virtually not in use today. The diagnostic procedures, the approach to care, the availability of diagnostic skills and the availability of therapies, it literally explodes. So if you have a frontier mentality, if you are interested in exploring the unknown and being part of that exploration, you will do that even if your basis is care in the hospital and care in the clinic. So this is an exciting world and I welcome you to it. Thank you, Dr. Wenger, uh, for your leadership over all the years. Uh, we learned a lot from you, and I think cannot even measure your contribution to the field, and not just the field itself, but the interaction and paying attention to close gaps in racial disparity, women disparity, encouraged and motivated. There are so many women in cardiology that uh, they mention your name in discussions with such enthusiasm. So I, I think it is unique uh, to have you. And I know you're very, very active even nowadays. So all what I'd like to wish you, keep up the good health from strength to strength. And I'm sure we're gonna hear more from you uh, on the field itself and maybe on women in cardiology and prevention of women in cardiovascular disease in the future. Thank you.